Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come apart from the cares of this life this week, this holy convocation at Michigan Camp Meeting to worship you, to study, to reflect on your word, to fellowship together. Now as we pause for a few moments to reflect on the sanctuary, specifically the most holy place experience May your Holy Spirit guide our thoughts this morning, speak to our hearts, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, amen, amen. On the screen, I have a photograph of Jack LaLanne. He is a health enthusiast, a nutritionist. At the age of 42, he set the world record for push-ups by doing over 1,000 in 23 minutes. That's averaging one push-up per second. And then to celebrate his 60th birthday at the age of 60, he swam from Alcatraz to Fisherman's Wharf, a distance of 2.4 kilometers. He wore handcuffs and towed a 1,000-pound boat. And then at the age of 70, he swam a 1.5-mile section of Long Beach Harbor while towing 70 people in 70 boats while handcuffed and shackled. This is a picture of Jack LaLanne at the age of 90. I'd love to look like that at 60. Incredible. (laughs) And this individual is a person that seems to defy the aging process. With good nutrition and good health and exercise, But even Jack LaLanne could not defy death and deterioration. You can offset these attributes that seem to pull at us like gravity, but death is a surety, and Jack LaLanne passed away not too long ago. When you look at the lifespan of individuals in the book of Genesis, you almost are incredulous at the longevity of life. Here I have a graph. You can see that Adam lived 930 years, the longest living individual, of course, Methuselah, 969 years. And I calculated if Methuselah were to die this year, 2019, he would have been born in the year 1050. And at the time of the Reformation, he would have been merely middle-aged in his 400s. Imagine how many doctoral degrees you can get. And Noah lived to 950. He's the only individual that's recorded that lived over 900 years after the flood. Of course, he began his life before the flood. He didn't begin having children until around 500, according to the book of Genesis. Now, you'll notice, according to this graph, that immediately after the flood that there is a precipitous decline in the longevity of life. Um, goes 600, and then you see that Abraham lives 175, Isaac lives 180, and Jacob lives 147, which is still long, but relative to 969, it's quite a bit um, more shorter. And then by the time you get to David, David's life is relatively close to ours. He died at the age of 70. Now, the average American lifespan is 70, 70, 77, 78, and if you're an Adventist, 
tack on seven to ten years in addition to that. But life is short, and there was an immediate physiological change in man after the fall. Sin affected our planet. It affected human nature emotionally, obviously spiritually, mentally, but physically as well. I'm five foot six. Uh, this is a result of sin. You know, we, we were never meant to be uh, this short. And I always say when I get to heaven, I'll be tall. But there, there was a, a, a result of sin that affected our physiology. And when we look at the sanctuary, we noted in our earlier presentations, uh, on Tuesday we talked about the courtyard experience, and then on Wednesday we talked about the holy place experience. Today I want to focus on the most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant. And when you look at this bird's eye view of the Mosaic Sanctuary, you can see that there's an implied movement. God wants to bring us from outside of the courtyard into the holy place, into the most holy place, and there is a movement that is implied from outside the sanctuary into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. And the last phase of this transformation is called glorification. This is one way of looking at it. The court is justification, the removal of sin's penalty, the holy place is sanctification, the removal of sin's power, and the most holy place is glorification, the removal of sin's presence. When you look at the sanctuary, the issue is sin and how God takes care of the sin problem. Sin has had a dramatic effect on our morality and our spirituality, but there was also an effect on our physical nature and our planet as a whole. Now, when you look in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, here we have the concept of glorification that emerges. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, when you look at this text, some people have asked, where is sanctification? And scholars believe that in Paul's mind, sanctification was actually the beginning of glorification, and we'll elaborate on that a little bit later. So here the glorification motif emerges, and in the book Education, page 15, Ellen White describes the telos, the goal of salvation, to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. So God's process in the plan of salvation is to bring us back. It is restoration. Bring us back spiritually, and then the final phase is the physical restoration. Now, I want to go very quickly through some points of glorification. Point number one is spiritual restoration. Glorification is a process 
that begins with our character transformation now. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. If we are character transformed and glorified, which begins right now, glorification, the physical transformation, will take care of itself. Do you have aspects of your character that you're not proud of? Do you have parts of your character that you've inherited or cultivated that drives your spouse crazy? Maybe it drives you crazy. And these are the rough spots, those areas in our life that God hones and chisels away. And the transformation, the glorification of character begins right now. John Piper says this, in Paul's mind, the process called sanctification in this life, the process of transformation from one degree of holiness to the next, is the first stage of glorification. Moving very quickly here, the second and obvious phase of glorification that we associate is physical restoration. Glorification culminates with our physical transformation at the second coming. Here it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. At the resurrection, at the second coming, I imagine Jesus coming in the clouds of glory, and you'll look down at your hands, and you'll notice like those oil of Olay commercials right? New hands. And then you look in the mirror, you'd be like, wow, I look good. There'll be no baldness in heaven, praise the Lord. No graying of hair, no wrinkles, no backaches, no cancer. Every day will be like the freshness of morning. Your mind will be crystal clear. I I don't think we can even imagine a day like that. You get up in a glorified body. And this is where God takes care of the final parts of the result of sin. The physical nature. The restoration of our bodies in that transformative moment. And I think that we can't even imagine in our minds what that moment will be like. Let's read in here in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Instantaneous transformation, glorification at the moment of the second coming, the resurrection on that day. Number three, environmental restoration. Glorification will mean the restoration of Eden. 
As I noted in my earlier presentations, I have the privilege of living in Alaska, and there are moments that I am hiking with my wife and my son that you are just filled with awe and wonder at the pristine beauty that is surrounding us. Sometimes we're hiking and there's not another soul for miles. And even in the midst of the ravages of sin on our planet, I don't think it holds a candle when we look at places like Yosemite in the lower 48, places like Denali National Park in Alaska. The Bible says that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. Heaven will be a place that we can't imagine this side of heaven. And here it is, Eden restored, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The Bible tells us that the tree of life will be reinstituted on planet earth, and I tell my congregation, first Sabbath in heaven, let's meet under the tree of life. Amen? It's going to be a reality, and let's meet there. Moving very quickly here in our reflection of glorification, glorification will involve relational restoration. Glorification will mean the restoration of relationships. Now, I as a pastor, I take into consideration that social awkwardness or awkward social situations are a part of the package. There are times that I'm sitting in a situation having to confront a dear saint or dear individual about a challenge, and it is awkward. And sometimes there's a lot of tension that results from these types of conversations that we have to have as ministers of the gospel. How many of you have tensions in your family? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have individuals that you just have bad blood with? A history. When you see them in the hallway, you duck and walk the other way. Tension, relational fallout, marriages that crumble, all of these dynamics that come into play. And even in our church, in the community of faith, we have drama, we have tension, we have things that happen that are unfortunate, and in the new heaven and new earth, can you imagine a place of relational bliss? Can you imagine a place where there is no social awkwardness, that you walk into a room and there is no feeling of anxiety, there's no feeling of being an outsider? Not only has sin affected our human relationships, but the Bible tells us that in the new earth, there will be a restoration of animal relationships. Here it is in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
There will be no predator-prey relationship. All the predators will be vegetarian, praise God. Remember one time I said, there's going to be no steak in heaven. A family relative of mine said, I don't believe that. Uh, Well, when you read the Bible, everyone will be vegetarian. That's where God is taking us. There's going to be no slaughterhouse in heaven. And if if you think you're going to miss your steak, trust me, God has something better in heaven. Amen? There's going to be the restoration of human relationships. Here it is in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, as I reflected on this, the Bible tells us that the leaves of the tree are going to have a healing element to them, which indicates that in heaven, we're going to be given a time for relational restitution. There is going to be no racism in heaven. Amen. There is going to be no ethnic cleansing There is going to be no genocide. There is going to be no racial inequality. And this notion that one race is superior to another race. And racism goes both ways, friends. We live in an age that is very polarized. And in heaven, God will provide a place for the healing of the nations. Relational restoration. And most, most of all, restoration of our relationship with God. Here it is in Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. In that new earth scene, they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. We will be able to see and encounter the face of God. Now, I'd like to reflect for a few moments on the, the character, because character is the most important thing in glorification. If God transforms your character, glorification is a surety. Amen? Now, what is character? Maranatha 2.22, if the thoughts were wrong, the feelings will be wrong. And the thoughts and the feelings combined make up the moral character. So when we talk about character, sometimes we assume that it's, it's this nebulous entity. But here Ellen White says that character is two things, the thoughts and the feelings. So if you want to have an assessment of your character, analyze what did I think about today and what were the corresponding feelings that went with those thoughts. Here's a quotation from Stephen Coving. So a thought, reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. Now, I'd like to use this illustration of character, and it has to do analogously with, with concrete. Concrete can be generally subdivided into two distinct phases. You have the forming phase, and then you have the fixed phase. According to the Bible, our characters are similar. Here we have a quote from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the definition of harden is to become firm or solid, to solidify, to become set, 
to calcify, to make inflexible or unchangeable, to become cemented. The Bible indicates that our characters are in two phases, the forming stays phase and the fixed stays phase. And have you ever heard individuals say that this other person is set in his ways? Our characters are in a phase of forming, but after a period of repetition, we become set in our ways. And that is why in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. The best opportunity to heed God's voice is always today. I've had Bible studies with individuals, and they're convicted on the Sabbath. And then the next week I meet with them, and they're a different person that they were than the week before. The Word of God hasn't changed, but they have changed. So the best opportunity to heed God's voice is today, I want to read this quotation from Review and Herald. Ellen White says, If the voice of Jesus is not heeded at once, it becomes confused in the mind with a multitude of other voices. The world's cares and business engross the attention and conviction dies away. The heart becomes less impressible and lapses into a perilous unconsciousness of the shortness of time and of the eternity beyond. Character is the transformative part of glorification that guarantees our physical glorification. Now, I'd like to transition here in our reflection on glorification to the article of furniture and the only article of furniture that was found in the most holy place, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. Ellen White indicates that the Ark of the Covenant prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar was taken by godly and holy men outside of the most holy place and hidden. She also indicates that before Jesus comes the second time, that the Ark of the Covenant and its contents, the Ten Commandments, will be rediscovered. Now, I want to share a few quotations from the pen of inspiration, Ellen White, in regards to the Ark of the Covenant. Before the temple was destroyed, God made known to a few of His faithful servants the fate of the temple. These righteous men, just before the destruction of the temple, removed the sacred ark containing the tables of stone, and with mourning and sadness, secreted it in a cave where it was to be hid from the people of Israel because of their sins, and was to be no more restored to them. Listen to this last sentence. She says, "...that sacred ark is yet hid." It has never been disturbed since it was secreted. So Ellen White says that these men took the Ark of the Covenant and they hid it in a cave. They hid it in a location. I don't think she says they hid it in a cave, but they secret. Oh, she does say they hid it in a cave. And it is still 
in that secret place to this day. Now, I want to read a few other quotations from Ellen White. There's several of them. I want to share with you just a sampling of them. She says, with his own finger, God wrote his Ten Commandments on two tables of stone. These tables were not left in the keeping of men, but placed in the ark. And in the great day, when every case is decided, these tables inscribed with the commandments will be placed so that all the world will see and understand the witness against them will be unanswerable. Now, there's another quotation here that is even more clear than the one I've just read. Here's another quotation from Ellen White, letter 47, 1902. These tables of stone will be brought forth from their hiding place, and on them will be seen the Ten Commandments engraved by the finger of God. These tables of stone, now lying in the ark of the testimony, will be a convincing testimony to the truth and the binding claims of God's law. So before Jesus comes a second time, before the close of probation, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant and its contents, the Ten Commandments, will be rediscovered. And the world will turn their attention to the Decalogue, specifically the Fourth Commandment. I want to read another quotation here. <clears throat> the Holy Law of the Ten Commandments, written on tables of stone by the finger of God and placed in the Ark, is the standard of righteousness. Before the obedient and disobedient, it will appear in the last great day, and all the wicked will be convicted. One last quotation. The precious record of the law was placed in the Ark of the Testament and is still there, safely hidden from the human family. But in God's appointed time, He will bring forth these tables of stone to be a testimony to all the world against the disregard of His commandments and against the idolatrous worship of a counterfeit Sabbath. I want to spend a few moments uh, reflecting specifically on the Ten Commandments. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. Exodus chapter 31 verse 18, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It is the only part of the Bible that we have today that God directly wrote with His own finger. The other parts of Scripture, God inspired the person, and they, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, wrote the Bible it is still inspired. But the Ten Commandments are unique. And here it is in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Notice the significance of how God gave the Ten Commandments. God did not dictate the Ten Commandments and Moses got out his pen, parchment, and wrote down what God dictated. The Ten Commandments 
were so important that God wrote them Himself, and He wrote them in stone. Now, when you look at the location of the Ten Commandments, go over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 5. Ellen White alluded to this, but I want you to read it in your own Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 5, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and after Moses received the Ten Commandments, he deposited the Ten Commandments in a specific place. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 5, And I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and they are there just as the Lord commanded. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was like a chest, and the ark was a miniature replica of the throne room of God, and we'll come back to this later on in our presentation today, but it's significant that the throne room of God had inside of it, or on the foundation of the mercy seat, were deposited the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to remind everyone that the Ark of the Covenant is a replica of God's throne, and the Ten Commandments were deposited inside of the Ark. Now, very quickly, I want to contrast this with the Law of Moses. Go over to Exodus chapter 24 and verse 4. There was something else that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Not only was he given the Ten Commandments, but he was also given the ordinances of the law of Moses. Exodus chapter 24, verse 4, And Moses wrote all the laws, all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, go down to verse 7. It tells us where he put these words, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they all said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. So, in contrast to the Ten Commandments, Moses wrote the law of Moses in a book, and in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, turn with me there. This is a key passage, especially when you're having Bible studies with your evangelical friends, and they quote from Colossians 2. Um, If I were If I were you and you're giving Bible studies, I would highlight this passage because it has become very helpful to me in my Bible studies, especially to our Protestant brothers and sisters. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. So, Moses' law was placed at the side of the ark. God's law was placed inside of the ark. And when you look at the last part of this verse, this is a key phrase that is quoted in Colossians chapter 2. Take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness, and what's the next word in your Bible? As a witness against you. That's a key phrase. The book of the law was placed by the side of the ark, And the Bible says that this book was to be a witness against the people. It was known as the book of blessings and cursings. The book of Deuteronomy outlines, if you follow God, these are the blessings that will follow. If you do not, these are the things that will result, the cursings. You'll be led 
away into captivity, etc. Now, go over to Colossians chapter 2, because every time I give a study on the Sabbath, they always quote from Colossians chapter 2. Now, in light of what we've just read in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, every time I give a study on the Sabbath, this text emerges, having ripe having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Friends, that is a direct quote from the phrase in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26. Do you see that? Having wiped out, first of all, which one had handwriting, God's law or Moses' law? Moses' law. So it says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, and the word requirements there in the Strong's Concordance literally says the ordinances of Moses. But the next phrase is critical. It says that was against us. So this is talking about the law of Moses, not God's moral law, and it's a direct quote, a direct reference to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, which was contrary to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So this is just a a helpful aspect in regards to the law of Moses. I want to read very quickly a quotation from Billy Graham. Some religious people that I know tell me that the Ten Commandments are part of the law and they do not apply to us today. They say that as Christians we are free from the law. Is that right? This is Billy Graham's response. No, it is not right, and I hope that you will not be misled by these false opinions. It is very important that Christians understand that the, what the Bible means when it says that they are free from the law. It certainly does not mean that they are free from the obligations of the moral law and are at liberty to sin. You see, the word law is used by the New Testament writers in two senses. Sometimes it refers to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which is concerned about ritual matters and regulations regarding food, drink, and things of that kind. This ceremonial law was of a passing character and was done away with when Christ came. From this law, Christians are indeed free. He goes on. But the New Testament is also speaking of a moral law, which is of a permanent, permanent, unchanging character and is summarized in the Ten Commandments. This law sets forth God's demands on human life and man's duties to God and his neighbor, that it definitely applies to Christians, is made clear in Romans 13, 8 through 10, Billy Graham. When you look in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, you remember that the Ark of the Covenant, the contents of the Ark and the Ark itself, was never seen by the children of Israel. And as the Ark of the Covenant was transported from place to place, it was covered. And all that the children of Israel would see is this covering of the Ark. And God gave very specific directions as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported and covered. Here's the reference in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come and they shall take down the covering veil 
and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Verse 6, they shall put on it the covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles. So the Levites would take the Ark of the Covenant, they would put on the badger skins, and then over the badger skins, they would place a blue cloth. So this is an artist's depiction of what the Israelites would see as they would go from place to place. They would see this blue cloth that was covering the Ark of the Covenant. This was the only thing that they saw. Now, the color blue has significance, and we see this in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 38 and 39. Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. So, the children of Israel were to, on the edge of their garments, have a tassel or tassels, and in the tassels, they were to put a blue cloth in the tassels. In verse 39 of Numbers 15, the Bible tells us what they were to remember when they looked at the blue cloth. And you shall have the tassels that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. So, as the children of Israel would go to the, through their day and look at these tassels, specifically the blue cloth, the Bible says that they were to remember the what? The commandments of God, which was represented by the blue cloth. Now, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 through 12, we have another place where the blue theme seems to emerge. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 12 Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. The children of Israel are camped at Mount Sinai, and there are a group of individuals, seventy elders, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, that are located there. And the Bible tells us that they see God standing, and He's standing on a sapphire stone. Now, I take no credit for this study. Uh, Micah Oxentenko and Richard Davison have done extensive study on the sapphire stone. So, picture it in your mind. They're there at Mount Sinai, and Moses, Aaron, the 70 elders are there, and God is standing on a sapphire stone. What color is sapphire? It's blue. So, God is standing on a sapphire stone, and the Bible tells us, reading on in Exodus 24, 9 through 12, as it were, the pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait here, and I will give you the tables of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So, God is standing on the sapphire stone, and He says to Moses, come up to me, and I'll give you tables of stone. Now, in the Hebrew, this should be literally translated, tables of the stone. 
In other words, where did God get the stone for the Ten Commandments? According to this verse, the implication is that when God was thinking of a suitable piece of material on which with his own finger to write the Ten Commandments, he didn't get any old rock to write the Ten Commandments. He got it from the very sapphire stone on which he was standing. And even in Hebrew tradition, in Jewish tradition, the Ten Commandments were blue. Now, it's significant because when Moses came down from the mountain, he placed the Ten Commandments inside of the ark, and the ark was a replica of the throne room of God in heaven. And in Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 1, we have where Ezekiel sees the throne room of God. He sees the real thing. This is not a scene of the Ark of the Covenant. He sees God on His throne, specifically the cherubim, Ezekiel 10 verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So here this idea of the sapphire stone emerges again, except it's seen in Ezekiel's vision. And there he sees cherubim, which is also alluded to not only implicitly, but explicitly in the Ark of the Covenant. And above the cherubim, there appears this sapphire stone. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1 and verse 26, the Bible says, And above the firmament, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human form. So here, here is a, a picture of God's throne, and God's throne is made out of sapphire. Now, when you put this picture together, we can see that God's Ten Commandments, according to the symbology of the sanctuary, is critical to God's government. It is the very foundation of His throne. And when God sought out material on which to build or construct and write His Ten Commandments, He chose the sapphire stone. Now, when you look in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, verse 8, the Bible says, But unto the Son, He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. And we can come to the conclusion that if God's throne is eternal, then it also means that God's law is eternal as well. Moving very quickly here, when you look at the foundation of God's government, it is the law of God. And in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, the Bible says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So really, the foundation of God's government is the law. It's the law of love. 
Now, when you look at this bird's eye view of the sanctuary, remember in our earlier presentations, we said that the, the experience of the sanctuary is to seek God's face. Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, were in the most holy place experience. After the fall, the entire human race was placed outside of the sanctuary, and in kindergarten form, kindergarten illustrative nature, the sanctuary is a movement where God wants to bring us into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. Notice where the law of God is. It's in the most holy place inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, where was the law of God written? Was there a location in Eden where they had the Ten Commandments inscribed in stone, and every day Adam and Eve had to go out and look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, i got to remember, Eve, i got to be nice to you today. Was that the case? No, the law of God was written in their hearts. And when you look at the trajectory of the sanctuary, the movement is to bring us back to the state of Adam before the fall. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 indicates the fulfillment of this reality when it says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart, and I will write them on their minds. The Ten Commandments are not only going to be written in stone, but in the restorative process where God brings us all the way back, they will be written on the tablets of our hearts. Eden lost, Eden restored. Now, as we reflected on this notion of the sanctuary and God's restorative process, I want to very quickly share with you um, some reflections in regards to the nature of where we are as a church and some of the challenges that we face as a denomination in regards to the sanctuary message and the sanctuary motif. I want to do a brief reflection of Adventist history and in regards to how we started and where we are going, and this is from one of my major professors, Fernando Canali, Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology at Andrews Theological Seminary. Some people have asked, why is the sanctuary so critical to Adventist identity? And it's important for us to recognize that Adventism grew out of what we call an eschatological beginning. It was an end-time focus. And on the screen, we have the eschatological beginnings of Adventism. It began in 1844. And Adventism would not have been born had it not been for our understanding of the sanctuary. Amen? So, in 1844, we began with an eschatological beginning, and then we moved to the soteriological emphasis in 1888. This was not a soteriological turn, it was a soteriological emphasis and the emphasis of righteousness by faith. In the 1960s, there was a dramatic turn in Adventism and Many times the church imitates culture. We're not very far removed from culture. 1960s America, the West, was going through social upheaval, and the church was not far behind. 
1960s, Adventism took a soteriological turn, and you had the emergence of what we call the conservative and liberal label, and going the evangelical way. The term conservative and liberal did not exist prior to this period. But there was a divide that began to happen in Adventism. And by the way, conservative and liberal is very relative. In some circles, I've been considered, uh, considered uh, liberal. In other, conservative, uh, in other circles, conservative. I just want to be biblical, amen? And faithful to the Lord Jesus. And then in the 1990s, you had a cultural turn and worship renewal and what we would call the secularization of Adventism. So right now, Adventism is going through what we would call an identity crisis, and if, if you have been under a rock for a number of years, uh, you just have to travel to different parts, even in North America, and notice that Adventism is very different depending on where you are regionally. There are several reasons for this. One of them is what we call the quantum leap and the emergence of what we call the Adventist intellectual. The Adventist intellectual came about because in 1960, Loma Linda and Andrews University began university programs, and in 1980, which is not that long ago, friends, Andrews University began giving doctoral programs, and in 1990, there were university explosions around the world. Now, we need to recognize, friends, that when we have the emergence of the Adventist intellectual, that many times what happens is that in order to be accredited, some scholars have to receive degrees from other institutions. Now, there are benefits and challenges to that, but if we are not careful and filtering everything through the Bible and spirit of prophecy, there are presuppositions and assumptions that come down and filter in to our doctoral candidates that are taking education from other institutions, and then they come and teach at our institutions, which is what happened with Desmond Ford and the whole Glacier View 1979-1980 fallout in regards to the sanctuary. So the Adventist intellectual presents a unique challenge for Seventh-day Adventists in that questions are being asked that were never asked before. And according to Fernando Canali, because of the cultural turns in Adventism, Adventism can be divided into four major groups in the church today. These are the theological divisions that are in Adventism. And Fernando Canelli indicates that he believes that the majority of Adventists in the pew are what he would call biblical Adventists, which is what I want to be by the grace of God. Amen? Biblical Adventism believes in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. They had the eschatological beginning of 1844. They affirm the sanctuary message, and they affirm 1888, righteousness by faith. I believe that this consists of the majority of Adventists in our pew today believing in the nature of the Bible as being the inspired Word of God and believing in the spirit of prophecy. Amen? There's another group, according to Fernando Canelli, and they are called Evangelical Seventh-day Adventists. Evangelical Seventh-day Adventists took the soteriological turn of the 1960s 
It's based in evangelical theology, and it's the reduction of Adventism to generic Christianity. In other words, evangelical Adventism is Protestantism where they camp out in the courtyard. It's basically a Baptist framework of you plus the Sabbath, plus the state of the dead, but they have a reductionist view of salvation. You come into the court, and that's it. Evangelical Adventism rejects or minimizes the sanctification process and lifestyle. This is a prominent group in Adventism today. And then you have what you call generic Christianity, or what we call progressive Adventism, or secular Adventism, or cultural Adventism. It's the liberals of the 1960s with the soteriological turn plus the cultural turn of the 1990s, and it is the secularization of Adventism. Now, the unique thing about secular or progressive or cultural Seventh-day Adventists is that many times are individuals that have grown up in the church for years, third, fourth, fifth generation Seventh-day Adventists, they like the culture of Adventism, but believe that Adventism must move beyond its historical roots. So there is a minimizing or categorical rejection of the sanctuary message of the spirit of prophecy and the adoption of theistic evolution and the natural trajectory toward homosexuality being acceptable except as long as it's in a monogamous relationship. In other words, the Bible doesn't reject homosexuality. It rejects promiscuity. So as long as two individuals of the same gender are faithful to each other, according to the secular Adventists, they say that we should be supportive of that. So it's this integration of cultural Adventism with the presuppositions from culture and the milieu of culture today. And even, this, even though this group is a minority, I believe, in Seventh-day Adventism, they many times hold a prominent voice and are very vocal in some of the independent publications online and have had a significant influence in some of our universities and campuses holding prominent intellectual positions. Now, there's another group here um, that he categorizes, and they are known as the separationists. They believe that the church is Babylon, and they have the independent home church movements. Now, in regards to this group, um, many times they siphon away tithe. Uh, they have their own organization, and sometimes, not all the time, they have a very critical view of church organization. Disenfranchisement with the institution, and so they go to form their own groups. And many times you'll find that many of the same problems, because we're all made up of people, uh, consist in these separationist movements. Now, in light of all these fractures that are taking place within Adventism today, I want to remind us that we need to stay on the boat. Amen? I heard an illustration from Mark Finley where he said, you look at the ark, the boat, Noah's ark, and you think about a bunch of animals on a ship and all the things that come with animals, 
and you place family on there, can you imagine those daughters, daughter-in-laws, with their in-laws on a boat, family drama, and you put them all on a ship, and you stir it up, it was a messy place. But the safest place on planet Earth during the flood was on that boat. Amen? And Ellen White tells us that the church will appear as if to fall, but it will not fall. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and on the captain of the ship, and he will take us through. And we are in a day and age when there are so many distractions, so many theological fracturing, but we need to ensure that our pillars of our faith, Sabbath, sanctuary, state of the dead, spirit of prophecy, that we are holding on to, and it's not by accident that in every generation the sanctuary comes under attack. Now, in tomorrow's presentation, tomorrow's is probably going to be the heaviest presentation, I'm going to be responding to Desmond Ford's allegations against the Seventh-day Adventist Church that our understanding of 1844 and the investigative judgment is unfounded in Scripture. And I'll be going point by point by point tomorrow in response to Desmond Ford. And I pray that you're there because if we do not have a solid footing for understanding the sanctuary message, friends, we are in the wrong church. We're in the wrong denomination because the sanctuary message, according to Ellen White, is the central pillar of our faith. As we begin to wrap up here this morning, I want to read a few quotations from the book Great Controversy, page 423. The subject of the sanctuary was the key that unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Notice what she says. She uses this term, a complete system of truth. Now, when you look at the sanctuary, the sanctuary is a unique structure. No other structure in the Bible goes from Genesis to Revelation, and no other structure tells you where Jesus has been, is going, and what he will do. No other structure does that. The courtyard shows you what Jesus did at the cross. The holy place shows you what Jesus did from AD 31 to 1844. And the most holy place shows us what Jesus is doing right now from 1844 to the close of probation. No other theological structure does this. This is the unique contribution of Seventh-day Adventists. The sanctuary is critically important because it shows us where Jesus is. I mean, that's, that's so critical. And if you were to ask an evangelical today, what is Jesus doing right now and where is he? they would not be able to give you a biblical response, an intelligible response, because the sanctuary has been set aside as an Old Testament relic. But the unique contribution of Seventh-day Adventists is the sanctuary hermeneutic 
showing us where Jesus is in the plan of salvation and in the closing work. And it's my prayer that we as a people will go back to the Bible. Amen? And back to the sanctuary. Let me tell you, right now in our church, we are in an identity crisis. We are in a time right now where every wind of doctrine is blowing through our church today. And it seems like some churches are a microcosm of the world church. I've been in communities of faith where under one roof, you have the whole spectrum. You have Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists. Then you have Seventh-day Adventists that don't believe in the substitutionary atonement, the moral influence theory, the belief that Jesus came to this earth, died on the cross, but he didn't die for our sins. He died to show us the love of God. Now, I believe it's, it's both and, not either or. He came to show us the love of God and to die for our sins under one roof. You have this idea and this belief, the moral influence theory. And then on the other side, you have individuals that don't believe that Genesis 1 is literal and theistic evolution and a rejection of the sanctuary and Ellen White. And so in our church today, we are going through this fascinating process of, of, of an identity crisis where the pillars of our faith are being shaken to the very foundations. And it's not by accident, friends, that every generation, every 40 years, the sanctuary comes under attack. God is calling us as a people to affirm the reality of the sanctuary and use it as our hermeneutic for understanding the ministry and work of Christ in the plan of salvation. I want to end with this quote, Great Controversy, page 489. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Let me read that again. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. This is a unique contribution of Seventh-day Adventists, and it's my prayer that we as a people will be faithful to the heritage that we've been given as a movement. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have at this camp meeting to recommit ourselves to the Lord Jesus, to recommit ourselves to the heritage that you've given to us as a people, the unique contribution that we have as a movement of the sanctuary message, the sanctuary motif, the sanctuary hermeneutic, the hermeneutical lens that helps us to understand the work and ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf at the cross and in heaven as our heavenly high priest. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.